Our great God and Father in heaven, we do pray that you who are the God, both of the earth that you have made and the altar that you have erected upon it, would indeed have mercy upon us, O God, that you would bless your church and that you would bless the nations of this world, that you would send forth your word and spirit to bring faith and repentance to all of the peoples of the land, that we would see your Son, uh, our King, lifted up on high and glorious and gladly bow the knee and confess our faith in Him. We thank you, O Father, for the blessings of this day and of this week, and we thank you that at the middle of this week we can gather together to sing psalms and hymns and strong prayers to you and to know that you, O God, will accept us and our prayers offered in the name of your Son. We ask your blessing upon those who are ill. We pray especially for our brothers and sisters in this congregation and those near and dear to us in other places that you would be with them to help them and strengthen them, to grant them healing, to encourage them. We are thankful for prayers that you have answered and for recoveries that are proceeding. And we pray that you would continue to bless each of these, uh, our brothers and sisters in their time of need. We pray, O God, for our nation that you would raise up God-fearing men to lead us and that you would restrain and even expose and depose the folly and wickedness of evil men who hold power at this time. We pray that as your people we would not look to princes or to policies uh, as if these were to be our salvation, but rather we would trust in your sovereign providence and know that your good and perfect will will be done. We pray that you would make us salt and light and leaven in this world, and that you would give us strong confidence in your grace and in the truth and authority of your word. And so tonight, as we open your word together, we pray that you would open our hearts and bless us, bless our minds that we might understand, that we might rightly divide, that we might rightly apply and believe your word, and that it would bear good fruit in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Uh, I'm going to read beginning tonight in Matthew chapter 24, not because this is really the text for our lesson this evening per se, but it is central to some of the ideas that we're going to be unpacking together tonight. And Matthew 24, I'm going to actually read the first 35 verses. So it'll be a lengthy reading. You can follow along or listen carefully. This is what we call uh, the Olivet Discourse. This is not the entirety of it, uh, but uh, this will give you a sense of uh, the central parts of it that are relevant to our study this evening. Matthew chapter 24, beginning at verse 1, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved." 
And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to, in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Thus far God's word. Now, that part of Matthew chapter 24 is almost always assumed by modern evangelicals to refer to Christ's coming again, uh, to events immediately preceding uh, an earthly tribulation, uh, and and depending on your end times eschatology, they're, they're thinking this is the end of what we think of, at least, this present world. But as we have taught in multiple sessions in previous series, this Olivet Discourse is instead... I think rightly understood, to be a prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman armies in A.D. 70, about 40 years after Jesus uttered this prophecy. And if you read it in context, even as we're reading those verses together tonight, hopefully you began to see already the markers that indicate that that's actually the subject, uh, and that's what Jesus is talking about. Of course, there is prophetic language, there is imagery that sounds like the end of the world, the sun going dark, the moon not giving its light, the stars falling out of the sky. And if you're not familiar with Old Testament prophecy, you might think that really sounds like destruction destruction of the world language. But if you are familiar with Old Testament prophecy, you'll know that's the kind of language that's used frequently in the Old Testament prophets to describe great movements of God in redemptive history, and specifically, judgment upon nations. The questions that prompted this prophecy were questions about the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus is very explicit that all of the things that he is speaking about will be fulfilled in the generation among whom and to whom he is speaking. Well, the Olivet Discourse, we've, we've taught on 
multiple times before, as I said, I think we've got a, maybe a four-lesson series uh, on our, on our uh, sermon audio and YouTube channels that you can delve into that more in a verse-by-verse detail. But, but the Olivet Discourse is one of two parts of the Bible, the other being the book of Revelation, that are particularly relevant for our study tonight. As we're continuing to work on this idea of an optimistic eschatology, this evening we come to this idea that idealism cannot do justice to biblical prophecy, and preterism leads more naturally, although not necessarily, to postmillennialism rather than to amillennialism. And there's probably three or four terms at least in that introduction that some of you may not be familiar with. So we're going to start uh, by kind of giving you some definitions and laying the groundwork for understanding the things that we're talking about. What we're arguing this evening is that an optimistic eschatology is kind of the natural outworking of a certain hermeneutical paradigm for biblical prophecy. Hermeneutics is referring to the way in which we interpret something, and in this case, how we interpret the Bible. So depending on how we are approaching the interpretation of biblical prophecy, if we're approaching it in a contextual way, uh, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, interpreting obscure passages in light of the clear, uh, understanding it covenantally, understanding the redemptive historical trajectory of all of Scripture, that's going to lead to certain conclusions, including, we think, a more optimistic perspective and and, and expectation with regard to the future of the present world. Now, we're referring tonight to idealism and preterism, but those are two of several approaches to biblical prophecy, a couple of different paradigms, if you will, for interpreting uh, prophecies in the Scripture. And, and maybe the easiest way to approach this is to think about the way in which people interpret the book of Revelation. If you have ever studied the book of Revelation, if you have a commentary on that, if you've listened to a sermon series on that, uh, you may have been introduced to the various schools of thought. And there are many, there are many different interpretations made of that part of Scripture, but there are generally speaking four categories for different approaches to the Revelation, the last book in the New Testament. The first, and by far the most common school of thought, about Revelation today is what we might call futurism. All dispensationalists, many historic premillennialists, would interpret the book of Revelation as, as describing events that are yet to be fulfilled in the history of the church. These are things that have not yet taken place. And depending on what particular position you're at in that camp, you might see more or less of the book as still future. But most futurists are going to say, at least from chapter 4 of the book of Revelation on, all of those things still lie in the future, even from our own present generation. Another view that is much less common today, they're still around, but there's not many of them at all, but was much more common in the second generation after the Reformation, is a view that's sometimes referred to as historicism. Now, a historicist reading of the book of Revelation sees Revelation as basically a picture of the history of the church throughout this present age. Normally chronological, not always. Some historicists see it as uh, out of chronology, or they'll see certain cycles that are uh, recurring in the book. But they'll say basically what Revelation is talking about is the events of the church starting in the first century, uh, going all the way up to the second coming of Christ, whenever that may be. And they'll associate specific 
passages and specific prophecies with particular events uh, that occur in the um, uh, in the history of the church. I, my favorite illustration of this is when Matthew Henry uh, says that the seven thunders that uttered their voice and John was enabled to understand what the thunder said. You do realize that thunder is a type of communication from heaven and you just simply don't have the ears to understand that language, right? You probably understood that already. Uh, But John, he knew what the thunder actually said that time, and he started to write it down, and the Lord said, don't. Right? The angel says, don't, don't write down what the seven thunders said. And, oh, okay, so, so we, don't, we don't know. We don't know what the seven thunders said. Well, Matthew Henry suggested that those were the papal anathemas uh, uh, in response to the Reformation. Now, how he knows that, I have no idea, because John didn't write it down. But anyway, uh, maybe a moment of prophecy from Matthew Henry's pen. But anyway, that's the kind of thing that historicism would, would do, is it would try to associate particular events, particular prophecies uh, in the book of Revelation with particular events uh, in the history of the Christian church. Today, I would say, in the Reformed world, and, and especially conservative Reformed churches, probably the most common interpretive model for reading the book of Revelation is what we call idealism. Now, idealism says that the events and prophecies in Revelation do not refer to specific historical events which either have already or will in the future be fulfilled literally. In other words, where the historicist is trying to tie every event to something in the history of the church, and the futurist is saying all of these things are going to happen one day, the idealist is saying, well, no, these are really just symbols. They're just, they're just pictures. They're symbolic depictions of this ongoing struggle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of Christ. Now, there are sometimes more eclectic uh, you know, one of the things you'll notice if you, ever, if you ever get into theological argumentation is people don't like to be pigeonholed. They always want to say that, that my view is different from everybody else's view. And so inevitably, you'll have somebody say, okay, so you take kind of an idealist view of Revelation. Well, it's kind of an eclectic view. It's like, oh, what do you mean by that? And then he'll describe his view. and you're, Okay, so you take an idealist view. Um, you know... I don't want to be unfair to anybody, but but generally speaking, you know, an idealist, there may be some things that he sees as more literal, more historical, but, but generally speaking, he'll see the book as more of a symbolic and philosophical depiction of the struggle between good and evil, between Christ and the kingdom of darkness throughout the present age until it culminates ultimately in the second coming of Christ. And then another school of thought that is also common in the Reformed world, is the view of preterism. And that's the view that I teach and that many of you have heard me talk about before. Now, preterists will say that most, not all, but most of the events and prophecies in the book of Revelation do refer to specific historical events that are literally fulfilled on the pages of human history, but that while those events were future from the standpoint of John's generation when he wrote the book, they are now in the past for us. In other words, Revelation is primarily describing a judgment that has already been fulfilled. It's already happened. And in other words, the book of Revelation, we read it, most of it, not all of it, I'm going to make some qualifications here, but, but we read most of it the same way that we read the prophecies in Isaiah and in Jeremiah, and in Ezekiel, and in all the Old Testament prophets, where they're prophesying about the judgment of nations, 
The judgment of Israel, the judgment of Judah, the judgment of Assyria, the judgment of Babylon, the judgment of Egypt, the judgment of Tyre and Sidon. And yet we know that those judgments have already taken place. And I think sometimes people are concerned that if we read the book of Revelation that way, then we're saying that the book of Revelation is no longer relevant to us. And I suppose if you think that the Old Testament is not relevant to you, that there, you might have some reason for thinking that. But, but I would hope that most of us would say, well, no, no, uh, we realize the relevance of those Old Testament prophecies. They are showing to us God's power, his authority, his faithfulness in fulfilling his word, his sovereign rule over all the nations, his punishing of wickedness, his uh, keeping his promise to his people. And just as those prophecies that have already been fulfilled demonstrate to us all of these truths that we hold dear, the book of Revelation functions in much of the same way. I will say that some of the best modern commentaries that have been written on the book of Revelation by Reformed theologians have been written from an idealist perspective. Um, many of you know uh, what some of those are. I've recommended that anybody who wants to read a commentary on the book of Revelation, uh, William Hendrickson's More Than Conquerors is probably the, the single best volume for you to get. It's easy to read. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be a specialist. You don't have to know Greek. Uh, but it's very, very helpful in showing the Old Testament connections, the cycles of the prophecy, the way that the whole book is structured together. But he writes from an idealist perspective. And I think that because some of the best scholarly work has been from that idealist perspective, many modern theologians, pastors, preachers, teachers have embraced that view as well. Now, when we lay out those different perspectives, we're really just trying to introduce you to basic paradigms for interpreting biblical prophecy. How do we think about prophecy? How do we read biblical prophecy? What's the right approach for us to take? Because we're not just narrowly focusing on Revelation tonight. Preterism is an idea that can be applied to many different biblical prophecies. Uh, it's just the idea that these prophecies are referring to actual historical events. It's not symbolic, although there may be symbolic language that's used. It's not just figurative depictions of struggle, although there may be figurative language that is involved. It's actual historical events, but those judgments are now in the past for modern believers. And there are two basic schools of preterist thought. And we've, we've distinguished these before and want to really make sure the distinction here is clear in your mind. Because one of these we think is good, right, biblical, and true. And one of these is heresy. <laughs> so the partial preterist view says that many prophecies in the, Old, in the New Testament, rather, many prophecies that a lot of Christians think are about the second coming of Christ, about the end of the world, about the rapture, about the tribulation, that many of those prophecies are actually about the, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Many of those prophecies. At least the book of Revelation, at least the Olivet Discourse, and maybe other passages as well that partial preterists will disagree with one another about. But there is a type of what we might call full preterism, or sometimes referred to as hyper-preterism. And that is the position that all prophecies in the New Testament have been fulfilled by the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Full preterism says when the Roman army surrounded Jerusalem, captured the city, burned the temple, that was not only the judgment of Israel... That was not only the end, the decisive end of the old covenant order, that was Christ's second coming. 
That was the end of the world as it was then. That was the resurrection of the dead. And the New Testament doesn't tell us anything about the future from there. Now, I say that that is heresy, not because every person who may be ensnared by those ideas is necessarily automatically lost, but but it's a heretical idea because it is denying things, it's denying doctrines that have been fundamental to the Christian faith for the entirety of the Christian church. When you begin denying lines of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, that's probably the moment that you want to put, put on the brakes and back up and take a second look at what you think the Bible is leading you to conclude. Now, now many times full preterists will say, well, those creeds are not Scripture. Yes and amen, that's true. The creeds are not Scripture. And, and any creed written by man is, is fallible. It's subject to error. We know that. Our faith is ultimately founded upon the Word of God and not upon the summaries of the Word of God written in human creeds. But, but, those creeds have been around a long time. And it's, it's striking that every branch, every tradition, every flavor, every kind of orthodox Christianity for the last 2,000 years has recited and affirmed the apostles in Nicene Creed. I mean, you can go into any Roman Catholic parish, any Eastern Orthodox divine service, any Lutheran church, any Anglican church, any Presbyterian church. You can go into any Baptist church, they may or may not, confess the creed, but they do believe what's in the creed. Like I grew, I grew up in churches, they would never have recited a creed in their service, and yet if you walked through every point of every one of those creeds, they would have affirmed every single line. They would say, yes, I believe that's true, and I think we should have no creed but the Bible, right? Which is itself a creed. But anyway, that's all right, because they're affirming the substance. When you begin denying those kinds of foundational doctrines, it calls into question whether or not you are truly Christian, right? And this is one of the reasons we would say that some quasi-Christian, pseudo-Christian cults are not actually Christian because they're denying things that are that fundamental to the faith. So I want to make very, very clear, when I talk about preterism in a positive sense tonight, I am talking about partial preterism. I am not denying that there is going to be a literal bodily return of the Lord Jesus at the end of the history of this present world. There is going to be an actual bodily resurrection of all of the dead. There's going to be a final day of judgment in which all of the nations are going to come before him. There's going to be an eternal state that takes some form that we call the consummated new heavens and earth. Um, All of those things are still in the future for us. I personally believe that we would find ourselves right now living in Revelation chapter 20. And I would interpret Revelation chapters 20 and 21 of that eternal state. Now, not all uh, partial preterists would agree with that. Some, some would say, well, no, we think Revelation 21 and 22 are figurative uh, descriptions of the church after the destruction of Jerusalem. That, 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 that's, a, that's a valid position to take. That's not my view. But they're not denying that Christ is going to come again. They're just interpreting those two chapters differently. We're going to disagree on some specific passages. I think that 2 Peter chapter 3 refers to the judgment of the world that we live in now. Others, including men that I highly respect and have learned much from and thank God for, they would say that 2 Peter chapter 3 is also a prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem. 
So there are going to be specific passages that partial preterists may disagree about, but what we would all agree upon is that Jesus is going to come again and that his coming in judgment to destroy Jerusalem in AD 70 was not the final judgment, was not the eschatological second coming as we think about it. Now, why was Jerusalem's destruction in AD 70 so important that we would say that many of the prophecies in the New Testament that sound like the end of the world actually are referring to that historical event? Well, it is, in many ways, the judgment of the old world. And you might say, well, the world wasn't judged in 70 AD. And I would say, yeah, it was. The Jewish world was. Right? The world that then existed. Think about how Peter describes the judgment of the flood in Noah's day. When God flooded the world with water, saved Noah and his family on the ark, what does Peter say? He says, the world that then existed perished. You say, God didn't destroy the world in the flood. Yes, he did. He didn't destroy the physical globe. <laughs> But he destroyed the world at that time. And in a similar way, the judgment of Jerusalem was a judgment of the world, the ancient world, the old world, the Mosaic world, the Jewish economy. It was the end of that age. It was the cataclysmic transition from one stage of redemptive history into what we call the last days, what the New Testament calls the last days. Now, we, in one sense, and by the way, on Sunday morning, not to tease you, this isn't like the, the news things that say, you know, tune in at 11 o'clock for more details. You know, somebody got murdered. Tune in, tune in, in a little bit. That, that's not what we're saying. But, but we are Sunday going to start a sermon series that is going to build upon some of these ideas. This idea of the already but not yet. This inaugurated eschatology that is moving toward its full consummation. Um, we, we are going to talk about that. There's, there was a sense in which we're already living in the last days after Jesus' resurrection. But when Jerusalem is destroyed, we are in the final period of redemptive history prior to the second coming of Christ. We are now in this period where the gospel is going forth, the white rider riding forth, conquering and to conquer, and the nations are being brought to faith and to the obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, all the elect will have been gathered and Jesus is going to return. And that's the next thing that we're looking for. And there is this transition that we see in the New Testament. We see it in the book of Acts between Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and the judgment of Jerusalem in AD 70. There's that 40-year period of transition that is very much like what you see in the Old Testament when Israel is brought out of Egyptian bondage and yet do not enter into the promised land until 40 years have passed. Probably just a coincidence that these things happen in 40-year cycles, right? So God's people have been delivered. What is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection? According to the Gospel of Luke, right? Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appear to Jesus. What are they talking to him about? His upcoming exodus. That's what the Greek text says. His upcoming exodus that he will accomplish at Jerusalem. So what is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection? It's the exodus from Egypt. What is the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, 40 years later? It's the church moving out of the wilderness into the promised land. Oh, by the way, how does the book of Revelation describe the church during this period? It describes it as a woman who flees into the wilderness and is persecuted by the beast until judgment's poured out. And then when the, the, the beasts are destroyed and, and, and the harlot and the beasts are overcome, the church enters into her glory. 
right? And so you, you, see, you see this pattern. I'm not, I'm not trying to teach all of that material tonight, but, but you see this idea that the judgment of Jerusalem in AD 70 is really important. It's more important than a lot of modern American evangelical Christians have realized. And yet when placed in its redemptive historical context, it really is very, very significant. Now, I want to say that all Christians, all Christians are partial preterists of a sort. And I'm not meaning to be sneaky, and I'm not meaning to misrepresent anyone. I'm not trying to kind of bring something in the back door here. But I do want to point out that even all of my dispensationalist friends, all of my uh, you know, uh, 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 historic premillennial friends, certainly all of my amillennial friends, many of whom would acknowledge that they're partial preterists, all Christians are partial preterists of a sort. Because all Orthodox Christians believe that there are many prophecies in the Bible that have already been fulfilled. Like, you, you know that not every prophecy in the Bible is still yet in the future to find its historical fulfillment. I mean, there's prophecies about the coming of Jesus and his virgin birth and his life and his miracles and his death and his resurrection. And, and you realize that in the Old Testament, again, there are many prophecies against kingdoms and nations and days of judgment that God would bring upon the people in those lands at that time. And so we realize that there are passages, there are prophecies that we read in this way already. And so whether Matthew 24 belongs in that category, whether the book of Revelation chapters 4 to 19 belongs in that category, that's simply a question of Bible study. It's simply a question of exegesis. And, I, and I, don't want to, I don't want that to disturb you. I realize that sometimes when I've interacted with my friends who are dispensational, they get very disturbed if I suggest, well, you know, I think actually most of the book of Revelation's already happened. I think most of it's already been fulfilled. And, 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 and they're worried that I'm denying something central to the faith. But all I'm saying is, well, no, I'm, I'm reading the book of Revelation the way that you already read the book of Jeremiah. It's just simply a question of Bible study. Does the context support that kind of conclusion? Does the language support that particular way of reading it? What best fits? We already read in Matthew chapter 24 that this whole conversation began when Jesus was at the temple. And the disciples come up and show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus says, do you see these things? Not one stone will be left here upon another. Every stone will be torn down. What is he talking about? The buildings of the temple. They ask him, tell us, when will these things be? What things? The tearing down of the temple. Now, immediately people will look at verse 3 of Matthew 24 and they'll say, no, no, no. They ask him, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? That must mean the second coming. That must mean the final coming. That must be the end of the world. No. No. His coming that they're referring to, the end of the age that they're referring to, is these things that he just spoke about when the temple is torn down. Now, in their mind, maybe they thought, well, that's going to be it. <laughs> that must be the end of human history. That, mu that must be the consummation of everything. But the coming that they are referring to is not what you and I refer to as the second coming of Christ. It's a coming in judgment. It's the coming when the temple will be destroyed. Jesus goes on to describe this in ways that just don't fit. If this is the rapture followed by an earthly seven years of tribulation or the end of the world from some standpoint. For example, the Olivet Discourse is found in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. And if you compare these passages, you'll notice that some of the things that are obscure in one of the accounts are clarified in another. 
Jesus says in Luke chapter 21 and verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. He refers to this abomination of desolation and says, let the reader understand. But that's the problem. The reader doesn't understand. Most modern readers, 2,000 years removed, don't understand what's being referred to. Luke tells us it's when Jerusalem would be surrounded by armies. That's, that's what you're looking for. Is that the sign of the end of the world? No. Is it the sign of the end of the Jewish world? Yes. Is it the sign that Jesus is coming back for the last time? No. Is it a sign that Jesus is about to come back and bring judgment upon his people? Yes. In Matthew 24, we read in verse 20 that Jesus says, Pray that your flight would not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. What does that matter? I mean, if I'm about to be raptured and the tribulation is about to commence, who cares what day of the week it happens on? But if I am a resident of Jerusalem or living in the district of Judea, the time of year and the day of the week might make a big difference. If I'm a resident inside Jerusalem and the gates are closed on the Sabbath, it might be hard to get out of town. If the winter has come in and it's hard for me now to move about and get out into the wilderness and up into the mountains and to, and to hide and care for my family, that, that's going to be hard. Ultimately, Jesus says in verse 34, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. And without reteaching the previous teaching that we've done on this, there's simply no way to read the word generation there in any way other than generation. It means exactly what it says in English. It's not referring to the race of the Jewish people. It's not referring to some future generation of people 2,000 years later. It's talking about the people in Jesus' lifetime. And, and what is a biblical generation? It's generally 40 years. When are these things fulfilled? 40 years after Jesus gave the prophecy. Now, we, we say all of this, we point all of this out to make this point. Idealism is typically only used in interpreting the book of Revelation. Typically, it's only used to interpret the book of Revelation. In other words, a lot of idealists who read the book of Revelation in that way, when they come to Matthew 24, they'll say, well, no, that a lot of this is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. They'll, they'll observe all of the things that you and I were just talking about. And they'll say, yeah, but we think at least the first part of the, the chapter, maybe the first two-thirds of the chapter, maybe the whole chapter is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, but we think the book of Revelation is not really historical. It's more symbolical and philosophical. But my question would be, why don't you read any other book of prophecy in the Bible that way? Why don't you read the book of Ezekiel that way? Why don't you read the book of Hosea that way? Why don't you read the book of Habakkuk that way? Why don't you read the Olivet Discourse that way? Why is it only the book of Revelation that we read in that fashion, especially when we consider, first of all, that the book of Revelation is the most Old Testament-centric book in the New Testament? The book of Revelation may not actually quote any passage from the Greek or Hebrew Bible, but it has more allusions to the Hebrew Scriptures than any other book in the New Testament. Any other. In fact, this is why I think so many people struggle to understand the book of Revelation is because, generally speaking, we're so ignorant of the Old Testament. So if the, if the book of Revelation is really kind of a medley and reworking and representation of Old Testament prophecy, why are we reading it in a way that's completely different than the way that we read Old Testament prophecy? Now, some people will say, well, it's because the book of Revelation is apocalyptic. 
and apocalyptic literature. It's a very vivid, very symbolic, highly figurative uh, genre, and that's true, but, but we have apocalyptic portions of the Old Testament, parts of the book of Daniel, parts of the book of Ezekiel, parts of Zechariah. And so if those apocalyptic sections in your Old Testament are not read in that idealist way, why would we read Revelation that way? And third, and and maybe most importantly, why would we read Revelation in that way when Revelation itself says it's talking about literal events that are soon going to come to pass. And I've given you several examples of that on your study guide. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Now, now if this is just a depiction of the struggle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of Christ, well, those things have already been taking place for thousands of years at that point. It's not things that are about to take place. It's not things that are soon to take place. It's things that have already been taking place for a long time. It might just be an interpretation of that, but that's not what the book says. The book says it's about things that are soon to take place. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. Why? For the time is near. The time of what? The time being described in the book. Verse 7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. A lot of people will say, well, see, that's obviously the second coming of Christ. He's coming back with the clouds, right? Acts chapter 1. Well, I mean, yeah, Jesus is described as coming with the clouds when he judges Egypt in Isaiah chapter 19. When he judges Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 24. When he returns at the end of all days, Acts chapter 1, sure, right? Anytime the Lord comes in judgment, guess what? It's associated with coming with clouds. And it's not riding on this sweet, white, puffy cloud, right? Like he's a care bear, right? It's coming in with thunder clouds. These are thunderheads. And he's coming in judgment in this way. The the question is, is this the final coming? And if it is, why, why is the reference specifically to those who pierced him? Those who pierced him were the Roman soldiers standing at the foot of the cross. Why are they the ones in particular who are going to see him if this is the coming that's going to happen thousands of years later? Revelation chapter 2, writing to the church in Smyrna, Jesus says, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now you could say, well, these are the kinds of sufferings that Christians will experience throughout the present age. And and in one sense that might be true, but, but this is not just about the general idea of suffering. This is about very specific historical suffering that was about to happen to the saints there at that time. Uh, Similarly, in Revelation chapter 3, writing to the church in Philadelphia, verse 10, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world or the whole land to test those who dwell on the earth. Here is, is again, a a great hour of trial that's going to come on everyone. It's not just a, a general idea of suffering. It's not just a general idea of conflict. It's a very specific historical reference. Similarly, in Revelation chapter 6, with the martyrs under the altar. Similarly, in Revelation 22, with the closing exhortations. Behold, verse 7, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of, this pro- uh, of the prophecy of this book. Verse 12, behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quick- quickly. Uh, 2,000 years from now. 
Maybe 2,500. We'll see. We'll see how it works out. Well, I mean, like, how many times did Jesus have to say it? There are time markers in this book. There are things in this book that indicate there is a specific historical fulfillment that is in view. It's not just a general symbolic presentation of suffering and struggle. It's actually a depiction of some future event. We can admit that every prophecy in the Bible of judgment against any nation says something about the ongoing nature of conflict between good and evil. Of course. Uh, Of course we should say that. I mean, when we're preaching through the book of Jeremiah, we should say, well, you know, the kinds of things that were going on between Judah and Babylon at that time, it's a a picture of the struggle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of Christ. And, And here you've got a faithful remnant in Israel, and you've got unfaithful apostate Israelites, and, and that's a that's an ongoing struggle in the history of the church. Yeah, there's some truth to that. But is that what that prophecy is about? No. The prophecy is about the specific judgment that was coming upon Jerusalem at that time at 586 B.C. when the Babylonians destroyed the city. Similarly, we can say every time the Lord prophesies of His coming in judgment against a nation, against a city, against a particular people, that coming in judgment is itself a type of the final coming of the final judgment. It's it's a foreshadowing of that. So when we read the Olivet Discourse and and Matthew 24 and we say that sounds like the end of the world, you say, well, you know, the end of the world may be a little bit like that in some ways. Yeah, sure, the Lord's going to come riding with a thundercloud and He's going to judge not just one nation but the whole world. That's going to happen one day. But is that what was being described here? No. Jesus is describing here what's going to happen to the temple in Jerusalem in their day. Now, I've been laying a lot of groundwork tonight to be able just to make this argument. But understanding those ideas about how we read biblical prophecy, how we think about the book of Revelation, how we think about the Olivet Discourse, let me suggest now that partial preterism leads more naturally to postmillennialism than it does to amillennialism. And I I, I say leads more naturally, I don't claim that it leads necessarily. Because in fact, I know post-millennialists who interpret the book of Revelation as a historicist uh, or as an idealist. Uh, I I know amillennialists who read the, the book of Revelation as a partial preterist. As far as I know, post-millennialists and amillennialists, they can hold to any of those views. They're probably, gonna, probably not going to view it as a futurist would, but, but any of the other views for sure, they, they could adopt any one of those perspectives. I'm not saying that there is a necessary, inevitable connection. It's not causation, but there is correlation. And I would suggest there's a more natural fit if you're reading the book of Revelation and seeing that this is a prophecy about a historic judgment against Jerusalem and against Rome that's already been fulfilled from the standpoint of our lifetimes, it more naturally leads you to postmillennialism. Why do I say that? Because idealism is almost always associated with the idea that the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of Christ are going to continue to coexist in mostly equal conflict throughout the present age. I don't want to misrepresent anyone. I could quote specific amillennial authors and books on this point if I need to, if you have any doubts about this. I don't want to attribute this to everyone. 
Some amillennialists would say, well, no, the gospel is going to grow more than the kingdom of darkness. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. But generally speaking, the amillennialist perspective is that the gospel is going to go forth and convert the elect, and the kingdom of darkness is going to continue as well. And there is maybe not a perfect equal distribution, a perfect duality between the two. But generally speaking, there's going to be this ongoing duality, this ongoing struggle, and neither one is going to have supremacy until Jesus returns. And then there will be a cataclysmic resolution to that conflict. Well, idealism is based upon, in part, that that sort of thinking about the end times. And, though, and therefore, when we come to the book of Revelation, an idealist says, well, yeah, this is just, this is just kind of the pattern. This is just kind of the cycle, right? The, the, the dragon raises up beasts, and they persecute the church, and there are harlots, and they persecute the church, and then they're overcome, and then that's just going to keep going on and on and on, right? And, and we're going to have, God's going to blow trumpets of warning, and then he's going to pour out bowls of judgment, and then that's, that kind of thing's just going to go on and on and on, and eventually, Jesus is going to come again, The gospel will save the elect, so they say, but it will not fundamentally or radically change the world which will remain under the sway of the wicked one. And if that's the way that you think the rest of human history is going to play out, well, I mean, I can understand why you might read the book of Revelation in that way. I can understand why you'd be an amillennialist and you might read the book of Revelation as an idealist. But let's play a thought experiment. Right? What if Revelation is about a specific historical judgment of a nation? What if it's talking about God's wrath against Jerusalem? What if the beasts are the Roman Empire? What if God is avenging the saints? What if He is avenging the blood of the martyrs, as the book says He is? What if the coming of Christ that is announced in the book of Revelation really was about to take place and was not the final coming of the Lord? And what if the struggle that's being depicted is not an ongoing struggle until the end of this present time, but it is rather a progressive and complete judgment of a specific persecuting power? I would point out, there, and and again, some of the idealist commentaries are great about pointing this out. There is a progressive intensification of the judgment in the book of Revelation. You've got seven seals that are revealing the, the conflict, and then you have seven trumpets that are warning the earth that God's wrath has been kindled, and then you have seven bowls being poured out in which the wrath of God is complete, and by the end of that, guess what? The enemies of God have been cast down. The beast is in the lake of fire. The harlot has been destroyed. The saints in heaven are singing praises. And we're not at the second coming of Christ at that point. We're in Revelation 18 and 19. Jesus has triumphed over these enemies. And now the church is experiencing resurrection. And Christ is reigning for a thousand years. That's Revelation chapter 20. In other words, that judgment is not describing a never-ending cycle of conflict. It's describing a progressively intense and finally complete judgment against a particular persecuting power. We could make the same point about a premillennialist view, not only of the book of Revelation, but of the Olivet Discourse. 
If these passages are referring to national judgments that have already been accomplished, then what requires the church today to maintain that evil will remain strong until Jesus comes again? What I'm trying to to show you is that a lot of times the assumption that the gospel can't convert the world, that the nations can't turn to God, that the world cannot be sanctified, a lot of times that assumption is based upon the idea, well, that that's, that's what Revelation requires us to believe. Well, it's just going to be this ongoing conflict until Jesus comes. Or, if you're a premillennialist, that, that's what the Olivet Discourse requires us to believe. It's just like wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and all kinds of trouble and, and until Jesus finally comes again. Well, what, if, what if that's not what those passages are talking about? And if you take those passages away... Now, how does the rest of the scripture look to you? Now, how do all of those passages that we read in the Old Testament and in the New Testament over the last four weeks, how do those make you think about the future of this present world? If neither Revelation nor the Olivet Discourse teach that darkness and light will continue in equal combat until the end of the present age, why would we not conclude based on all of the other passages that we've read, that Jesus will indeed triumph through the gospel, convert the world, and reign over all the nations. So just to be clear, I'm not claiming that partial preterism and a preterist reading of the Olivet Discourse or the book of Revelation requires postmillennialism. I'm just arguing that it leads more naturally to it. What I would question is what compels you to embrace an amillennial perspective. And if you do take an amillennial perspective that says the kingdom of Christ and the reign of Jesus and the conversion of the nations is, is only a symbolic depiction of the gospel and its progress in this present age, but does not ultimately lead to the conversion and Christianization of the world, then how do you interpret those prophecies? How, what do they actually mean? Like when it says the ends of all the earth will hear and fear and turn to the Lord, what does that actually mean? What compels us to take an amillennial perspective? All right, uh, I've got like three minutes left until the top of the hour. It's going to take more than three minutes, but I do want to circle back to this for just a, for just a second because I told you I was going to combine a few of the points in the rest of our series, and this was one that I wanted to tack on here, which is good because I got asked about it after last week. And that is what I brought up last week about uh, death being the last enemy that Jesus would destroy, not the first. And I said that's a reason to have an optimistic eschatology, and I want to flesh that out for just a minute. And I've given you a number of references here. that I'm just going to spend a few minutes here developing this. This is really based upon 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And let me just remind you of what's said there in verses 20 to 28. This is on your study guide or you can look it up in in your copy of the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20 says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, 
when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son, of Man, uh, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Now, one of the things that you may notice is that Paul, in that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, is working out of Psalm 110, right? Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament. And it begins in this way, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And then it describes the reign of the Messiah. Well, Paul is working out of that passage, Sit at my right hand, reign at my right hand until I subdue all of the enemies against your reign, against your rule. All of the nations, all of the powers, the kings that say, he will not rule over us. We have no king but Caesar. Let us cast off their cords, right, from Psalm 2. All of, the, all of those enemies are going to be subdued. And Jesus is going to reign until all of them have been put under his feet. And Paul says the last of those enemies that will be destroyed is death. Well, briefly, just to to handle this as quickly as I can, Christ begins his reign after his resurrection, right? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28. And it is formally received, it's formally inaugurated at his ascension. Remember that passage that we read several weeks ago from Daniel chapter 7? I saw one like the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days, and to him was given a dominion and kingdom, and that he should rule over all peoples and nations. It's at that time that Jesus was seated at the Father's right hand, which is a reference to him being enthroned, right? He's he's reigning at the right hand of God. He is given his inheritance. What was his inheritance? Psalm 2, verse 8, to rule all of the nations. How was he going to exercise that rule? With a rod of iron, Psalm 2 and verse 9. Until when? Until all of his enemies are subdued and placed under his feet, as we just saw in Psalm 110. The last enemy, Paul says, to be subdued will be death. And when will that happen? When Christ returns. Which is what we see again and again in the New Testament uh, Jesus says, do not marvel at this. John chapter 5, verse 28, do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. It's what we see at the end of Revelation chapter 20, when the dead are raised, death and Hades give up all of the dead who are in them. The sea gives up the dead who are in it. They are assembled before God, uh, before the throne of Christ. Books are open. Another book is open, which is the book of life, and the dead are judged according to what is written in the books. We see it in Matthew chapter 25, where the nations are brought together before the Lord, uh, the sheep on his right hand, the goats on his left. This means that Christ's reign... Pay attention, this is the important part. This means that Christ's reign, which is when all of the other enemies are subdued, is interadvental. What do we mean by that? It's between his first and second coming. Do you see that? If you could follow all of those points. So he rises from the dead, all authority is given to him. He ascends to heaven and he's enthroned at the Father's right hand. He begins to rule the nations with a rod of iron until all of the enemies are subdued and the last enemy to be subdued is going to be at his return when he raises the dead and brings the world to judgment. 
The last enemy is death, not the first. Ken Gentry says it this way in one of his works on this point. Quote, the end of history is contingent. It will come whenever it may be that Christ delivers up the kingdom to his Father. But this will not occur until after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Consequently, the end will not occur and Christ will not turn the kingdom over to the Father until after he has abolished all opposition. Here again, we see the gospel victory motif in the New Testament in a way coordinate with Old Testament covenantal and prophetic expectations, end quote. In other words, when Jesus returns, he doesn't return to a world in rebellion. Do you see that? It's not as if Jesus returns, he's been king of the nations, he's been ruling with a rod of iron for 2,000 years and nobody knows it. Well, a handful of people know it, right? Like a, a handful of people in the OPC, maybe a couple people in the PCA, there might even be some Reformed Baptists in there, they, they know it, you know, but, but it's just a handful of people that know it. No, like that, that's not the picture at all. All of the enemies are going to be subdued before... Jesus comes again, because what happens when he comes again? He raises the dead, and the resurrection of the dead is the last enemy, not the first one. He doesn't come back, raise the dead, and then put his boot on the neck of all of the rebellious kings and say, bow the knee. That's not, that's not how it happens. They bow the knee. They confess Christ is Lord. Jesus returns, raises the dead. All of the enemies have now been subdued. Doug Wilson, in a, in a simple article on this, said it this way, quote, In the more common views of Christ's reign, death is the first enemy to be destroyed. Human history goes along doing its thing until the second coming dramatically interrupts it. The dead are raised, and then comes the millennium, if you're pre-mill, or the eternal state, if you're amill. But in both cases, death is the first enemy to go down. In this scenario, however, death goes down after all rule, authority, and power with the assumption being that this is all rule, authority, and power that is opposed to Christ, has been defeated. This means that our task prior to the second coming is through the gospel to casting down imaginations, to be casting down every high thing that sets us up, up against the knowledge of God, and to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The lion will lie down with the lamb, children will play with cobras, tornadoes will be diverted from their courses, and Congress will start doing good things. Sounds impossible, right? A man considered by his neighbors as accursed will die when he is a hundred. And after all this, with so many wonderful things accomplished, and the earth being as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, God will give the signal for the final trump, and death will be destroyed. Death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire." End quote. Now, again, Doug is, Doug is playing on some of the language in Isaiah, and, 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 and you might interpret those passages in different ways. Like, admittedly, like people who have an optimistic eschatology, they might say, well, you know, I think there's some things that are figurative. I'm not going to let my kids play with cobras yet. You know, okay, that's probably a good idea, right? Be, be a responsible parent. But the point is that Jesus is reigning over the nations right now. He has a rod of iron as his scepter right now. The gospel proclamation is, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Jesus doesn't come back to a world in rebellion. He comes back to a world that has been subdued except for death. And no, that doesn't mean every single person. I have to keep making these qualifications, right? Hopefully I've made them enough that you're getting, getting the idea. Not every single person is regenerated. Not every single person is in full submission. But the world has been brought into submission. And the last enemy 
his death. Paul is working from Psalm 110 in this paragraph of 1 Corinthians 15 that we read. Christ must reign until he has subdued all of his enemies, every rule and every authority and power. That dominion is what he will accomplish during his rule. And his reign will end at his second coming when he raises the dead and presents an obedient, glorious kingdom to the Father. And so my question would be this, when will Christ subdue every enemy and all other earthly powers in the premillennial or amillennial view? You would have to say at his second coming, I think. I think that's what, you'd have to, that's what I would say as an amillennialist when I was one, right? And then when I stopped saying that, people started saying, aren't you postmillennial? And I would say, well, no, no I'm, I'm an optimistic amillennial. Well, you don't sound like an amillennialist anymore. When will Christ subdue all of those enemies? It's not going to be during his rule. Or is it? It's going to be at his return when he raises the dead. But death is the last enemy, not the first. Now, maybe, maybe you're thinking, well, he, 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 he comes back and he subdues them all, and then 30 seconds later he raises the dead. Oh, oh, okay, fair. Like, I'm, I'm not trying to be funny. That is a possibility. You could say they're all in rebellion un, uh, until the second coming, and then Jesus subdues them all, and then raises the dead immediately after. Okay, fair. But is that what the scriptures are, are leading us to conclude? Will it be after the resurrection or immediately prior? When will those glorious promises from the, uh, about the kingdom be fulfilled? I think the Bible says it's during his reign, and I think his reign is right now. And he already has been given the inheritance of the nations, and he already has the iron scepter and the nations are being told to obey Jesus, which is what the Great Commission is all about, the gospel is about bringing the nations to the obedience of faith. So says Paul twice in the book of Romans. So in summary, let me give you six points and we're done. Thanks for being patient tonight. The book of Revelation should be interpreted according to its own statements about imminent earthly events which it announces and describes. Second, the book of Revelation should be interpreted like the Old Testament prophecies that it alludes to so often, which themselves foretold the judgment of kingdoms which have now been fulfilled. Third, if the book of Revelation and the Olivet Discourse are announcing national judgments which have now been accomplished in history, they are not a barrier to post-millennial conclusions. And I think that's, that's part of what holds people back. They say, you know, like I have read people and I've heard people and I've had conversations with people where they're like, I want postmillennialism to be true. Well, that's cool. But I, like, I want the secret rapture to be true, you know? I mean, I, that, that is the doctrine I want to be wrong about, you know? And I will live happily in glory, being mocked by all my dispensationalist friends. I would be perfectly happy to just suddenly be snatched, Right? But, but I think a lot of people, they say, I, w- I want postmillennialism to be true, but I, but I read these passages and I can't get around, you know, the, things are getting worse and worse and worse. And what if, that, what if that isn't talking about what you think it is? Where, where's your opposition now to believing that the world's actually going to get better? Number four, idealism cannot do justice to biblical prophecy. And partial preterism, I think, leads more naturally, not necessarily, but naturally to postmillennialism than to amillennialism. Number five, Jesus' reign takes place between his first and second coming, and during that reign, he will subdue every enemy and opposing authority. The last enemy to be subdued and destroyed is death. Number six, the subjugation and conversion of the nations promised throughout the Old Testament must take place prior to the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. Amen. All right, so that's our, that's our study tonight. Let's bow together in prayer, and then we'll see if you've got any questions before we go home. 
Gracious God, we are thankful that we can meet together on these Wednesday evenings. We are delighted to wrestle with these ideas. Father, there are things in your word that stretch us, that excite us, that confuse us. Uh, We often do not know uh, what we should think. Uh, We want to be faithful, O Lord, but we realize that your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts than our thoughts. So we pray that you would help us to come to your word humbly, reverently, expectantly, believing that your word uh, promises exceedingly above and beyond all that we ask or think. And we pray that we we would engage in this study in a way that truly does honor Christ and give hope and comfort and courage to the hearts of your people. Bless us now with safety as we return to our homes, prepare our hearts for the Lord's day. Bless those who will go away from us uh, for travel. We pray that you'd protect them as well and bring them safely home to us once again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay. Questions? Ben, Ben Tom. Well, so it's based on the Latin word for past, and, and, and it's just kind of the stipulated term that's come to be used for reading New Testament prophecy in, in terms of its prior historical fulfillment. I honestly, I, I am not aware of when the term was first used in that way, um, but I know that it's been, those prophecies have been read that way for a long time. It's certainly not a new, a new way of thinking about them. It's just become less common uh, since the 20th century and the, the explosion of dispensationalism. I can try to, yeah. yeah. So what you're missing there, uh, the question that most people ask here is, where are the wicked? Are they resurrected? And you would say, yes, they're definitely resurrected. We know that, Acts 26, John 5, multiple other passages. Uh, They're not mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 only refers to the resurrection of believers. And so the order is Christ, the first fruits in the first century when he is raised in his resurrection body. He's the first fruits, the new beginning, the new creation has commenced. Uh, The eschaton, the end, has been inaugurated. And then those who are Christ at his coming again. So when he returns, the second coming, right, the final coming as we think of it, uh, he raises the dead and all those who belong to him, their souls and bodies are reunited and transformed, which is what he describes in the latter part of the chapter where there is this sequence of we bear the image of the man of dust, now we bear the image of the man of heaven, first there's the fleshly, now there's the spiritual, there's the perishable, and now there's the imperishable. So Christ is raised in the first century. Those who are Christ are raised when he returns again and raises all of the dead. And what's different between the resurrection of believers at that time and unbelievers is that the believers' bodies are transformed and the unbelievers are not. So the unbelievers are made alive, but they're not, but they're not glorified. No, it's, that is the conquering of death. Yeah. So when Jesus is raising people from the dead, death and Hades are giving up, to, to use the language of Revelation chapter 20, death and Hades are giving up the dead who are in them. Christ has conquered those demons. He's mocking them in the book of Hosea. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? They have none because now he has broken their power. So he reclaims the dead from who are held by Thanatos and Iades, right? Death and Hades. And that is the conquering of death. Jesus is reigning. He's subduing all of his enemies. He comes back. He raises the dead. That's the conquest of death. And then the end comes.